Good morning. I'm Rob Kunzman. The reading for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 5 to 14. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We actually do a lot of fun things around here. Did you know that? Um, I'm not saying this isn't fun to get together and worship, but I mean, like fun things, but mostly they fall under the category of children's ministry or youth ministry. I'm just saying people like me don't come up with fun things very well, and the children and the youth always do. And um, one of those occasions was in October this year. Children's ministry put together what they called a pumpkin trail. And so the kids showed up with their parents in the parking lot and began right here at uh, step one and snaked their way all the way around in the grassy area to the parking lot on that side. And at every location, there was a different person handing out treats. And uh, we were invited, staff and other people, to participate and to come in some kind of costume you know, dress up, it's Halloween. So my wife and I agreed to dress up and come in costume. Um, I dressed up as Darth Vader, um, and I actually had a great big black robe, and I had the full mask on. You couldn't see any part of me. My wife dressed up as Princess Leia. I know that's a little disjointed, Darth Vader and Princess Leia, but we, we were together. And uh, you know how the hair's twisted up on the side, Princess Leia? She had something we found over at that costume store. It looked like two cinnamon buttons on the side of her head. It was hilarious looking. Um, but on that particular day, one, one little kid, several of them actually, came up. And when they saw me as Darth Vader, they would get behind their mother or their father and kind of hide and move on. And they wouldn't take anything out of my box. Um, but others, they didn't care. They just thought it was kind of cool. So... Um, you know, the idea of a costume is to not reveal yourself, and uh, people don't know who you are, and most people didn't know who I was, but some people were catching on because Brenda was standing beside me. And um, so one little girl who was particularly precocious and confident and everything else came walking up to get her stuff from me, and her mother said, do you know who that is? And the little girl said, well, of course, it's Darth Vader. It's like... <laughs> And, and she just grabbed her stuff and went on, right? She was happy to get her a treat. And um, 
I started out by saying uh, something like, come over to the dark side, and that scared the kids even more. So I transitioned to um, I transitioned to another phrase that Darth Vader would never have used, right? May the force be with you. That would have been more like Luke or something, right? May the force be with you. Well, you know the story of that movie. The force is, well, it's a, a field, right? An invisible field of power. It's a force. And when Luke or any of the Jedi stepped into the force and just focused and were one with the force, they were excellent. When they were outside it, not so much. So why do I even start a sermon like that? Because I start it so I can paint a contrast. Sometimes when people think of the Holy Spirit, they think of a force of field. They think of something that's indefinable, which to a certain extent it is, but they don't think of it as personal. But it is. So who is the Holy Spirit? Not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is the second person of the Trinity, identified over and over again in Scripture. And the role of this second person of the Trinity is multiple but one of his primary relational molds be, roles, because the Trinity is all about relationships, divine community. His primary role is to actually speak on behalf of or speak about Jesus and the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit's job description is, so to speak, in the divine Trinity. And Jesus points this out to his disciples in our passage and in other passages. John chapter 14 is another uh, passage about the Holy Spirit's coming. So as you may expect, I'm going to focus on the Holy Spirit today and the way in which the Holy Spirit leads the church, led it in the book of Acts in the first century and leads the church today. So let's ask a number of questions concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. In the first service, I realized I was going too slow. So I'm going to put it in hyperdrive so I can get through it all. So here you go. Here's the work of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is co-creator with God the Father and God the Son in the creation of all things. Genesis chapter 1, right out of the gate. This earth was formless and void. And what was going on? The Spirit was hovering over the waters. Routinely referred to as the Holy Spirit. It led one theologian to say, his name was Gregory of Nyssa. I love him. He said, there can be nothing that the Holy Spirit cannot said to have made. All things came into existence because of Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. First work of the Holy Spirit, co-creator. Second work of the Holy Spirit to deflect attention from himself and to focus or redirect attention attention to Jesus Christ and God the Father. In chapter 16 that we just read, you heard that articulated in a couple of ways. One of the things that was said in chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, 
was that if the son had not left, he was talking to the disciples, if I don't leave, it's not good for you. If I leave, it is good for you. Why? Because if I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to come. Now, you might look at that and see it sequentially and say to yourself, oh, okay, so the Holy Spirit wasn't around until Jesus came. That's not exactly what he meant. He certainly didn't mean the Holy Spirit did not exist until I sent the Holy Spirit. What Jesus meant was, if I go away, things are going to dramatically change for you and for all believers. There's a sense in which my presence will be uniformly everywhere. There's a way in which my presence will anoint multiple people to speak the Word of God. That was the day of Pentecost played out. You saw it on display. But that Spirit's work is to point to the Father and to the Son. Third part of the work of the Spirit. The Spirit, according to the passage we read, convicts the world of sin. Conviction of sin. Let's put it this way. Smiting of the heart. Routinely in the book of Acts, there are episodes in which the apostles are preaching or declaring, and it is said that the people's hearts were stricken or smitten. It was said of the people who were about to stone Stephen that they heard the word with such strength and power that they had to close their ears, clap their ears over their hands over their ears so they couldn't hear the words anymore. The power of the Spirit convicting of sin. That is said to be the work of the Spirit. Not only convicting of sin, but also concerning righteousness. Concerning righteousness because everyone, because of the power of the Spirit, understands there is such a thing as righteousness And there is such a thing as sin. That comes from the Spirit. Concerning judgment, which is also a uniformly universal understanding, that people will be judged because of sin. All that conviction comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. I read one time of a missionary who, way back in the 1940s, was uh, trying to communicate the gospel to a group of people who had not heard. And of course, this is before we had video and all that kind of thing. The Jesus film hadn't been produced yet. (laughs) For those of you who are crew people and seen it, all they had was slides. So missionary actually had a slide machine, and he was showing slides to demonstrate the story of the gospel on a whitewashed wall at a house. And each slide he would show up, he'd tell another part of the story, and And then he got to the story of Jesus on the cross, and he threw a slide up. And as he did, there was a man sitting in the audience that jumped up, put his hands up like this, or ran towards the image. And he said, come down from there. You don't deserve to be there. I do. Where did that come from? Oh, maybe somewhat from the missionary's teaching. But really... That emotional response was triggered by the Spirit of God. He understood his unrighteousness in light of the righteousness of God in Christ. The Spirit convicts in that way. The Spirit is also said to be the one who leads, who leads the church. There's so many illustrations of this in the book of Acts. 
But a couple of them unfold in what I consider to be a very dramatic way. The first leadership of the Spirit that we see in the book of Acts that takes a new direction is a revelation concerning what God was all about. It was when Peter realized because of a vision and then because of the arrival of men from Cornelius' house that the gospel was actually for the Gentiles as well. And that gospel is now, Peter understands, universal. That was a huge revelation. Nobody thought of Messiah as it related to the Gentiles, only to the Jews. That's the unfolding revelation of God. You might say to yourself, well, wasn't it there? Yeah, I think it was actually there in the Old Testament. And I certainly think it was there in the New Testament in the teachings of Jesus. But not until Peter has this revelation are the eyes of his understanding open and enlightened. And he sees what the teachings of Jesus were all about. The revelation of God continues to unfold because of the leadership of the Spirit. It has for centuries in the church. As a matter of fact, one time while they were praying, the apostles, the apostles were led by the Spirit. They were led by the Spirit to appoint Saul and Barnabas to be sent out. There's two things going on there. Number one, the leadership of the Spirit. But number two, Paul and Barnabas didn't send themselves out. They weren't Lone Ranger Christians. They didn't say, I'm going out and I'm going to save the world. They were sent out by the church, led by the Spirit. John chapter 14, the other epic passage concerning the coming of the Spirit reminds the disciples that the Spirit will bring to their remembrance the words of Jesus. So think about this. Disciples have been with Jesus 24-7 for three years. They didn't just like you, many of you who get up and go to a class, walk across the street or get in your car and go get continuing education or your BA. You didn't go to a class and come back home. You were together all the time. So for three years, they traveled together. They ate together. They all slept in quarters together. Can you imagine trying to digest everything Jesus had said in three years, 24-7? Impossible. So Jesus says, don't worry about it. Because the Spirit, when he comes, he will help you remember what I have said. Thank God for the work of the Spirit. Because we wouldn't have the New Testament if it wasn't for that. It was the New Testament that opened their eyes and their memories so they could record the teachings of Jesus and led them, arguably, to the teachings that they would express because there were more, as John says. Also, the Spirit will guide us into all truth, says John chapter 16. I love a a quote that I read this week by William Barclay, one of my favorite guys. He said, truth, well, God, it's all truth. He said, truth is not a human discovery. It is God's gift. It is not something we create. It's something already waiting to be discovered. At the back or behind all truth is God. Now, we think of that in terms of revelation in the Scripture. My friends... It's also true of all truth. Behind every fact and discovery 
in biology or physics, chemistry, mathematics, there is God, the author of all things, and Christ who holds all things together. The truth concerning God continues to unfold, and we continue to learn. Thanks be to God. The Spirit is also described as a counselor, an advocate, a guide, a helper, a comforter. All those words are used interchangeably depending on the translation you're using. Actually, all those words used interchangeably in one translation or another are an attempt to grasp something that's too big for one word. So in the old translation, the King James Version that I grew up with when I was in Sunday school, the word was comforter. You know the problem with the word comforter, the word comforter has changed. Or maybe you didn't know that. The Latin derivation of the word comforter is not just a person who puts his arms around you and comforts you. It's a person who gives you counsel. It's a person who's your advocate. It's a person who encourages you. As a matter of fact, in some literature, it's used for a general who would walk into a battlefield and give the soldiers a speech to help their spirits to move forward. That's what the counselor, the advocate, the comforter, the helper is. To use the Greek word paraclete, he comes alongside. He encourages us in the work that we're called to. The work of the Spirit is also that he confirms that we are the children of God. Spirit confirms with our spirit that we are children of God, as Romans 8 says, actually heirs with Christ. Heirs with Christ. Not just normal human beings. Not people who are going to die and rot in a grave. But heirs with Christ. Paul also says, if you are born by the Spirit... You have resurrection life. You're an heir with Jesus Christ to all things. Galatians puts it this way, before Christ came, you weren't part of a family. Paul speaking almost predominantly to Gentiles. And then he says, now you are. (laughs) And how does he say it? He says, now you're children of God. And you know what you do as children of God, he said? You cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, the most intimate term we can attribute to God. The Spirit witnesses that to our hearts. The Spirit also empowers, gives power for service. On that day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on all flesh. But let's think about Peter for a minute. It was definitely poured out on Peter. Peter was that guy that denied the Lord in the face of a young girl who just wanted to identify him as being one of the disciples. He, he of course, repented because Jesus turned and looked at him just at the moment he said, I don't know him, and cursed him. Imagine that look, Jesus looking at you after you said that. Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was terrified like the rest of the disciples. He was huddled in the upper room wondering what was going to happen next. But on the day of Pentecost, 
the guy who was a denier became a proclaimer that started the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people came to faith. The Spirit empowers, and he routinely did it with the apostles. And here's the last thing I want to mention, and there could be more. The Spirit intercedes for us. I actually want to read uh, this passage. If you have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew. You can turn to it as well. It's in Romans chapter 8. Paul's talking about the present sufferings that we have. And we have many of them. 8 verse 18, he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worthy or worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Can I branch off? That's a very eschatological statement, you know. You want to think about the end times? Stop thinking about the dragons and the demons and all that kind of stuff. Just go back and look at that verse. He's going to restore all things. I don't know how, but he's going to do it. We know, he says, that the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. And then I skip down to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That's a beautiful passage, isn't it? At our board meeting on Thursday night, uh, one of our new elders, Joel Wong, was given the assignment of bringing the devotional. And he chose this passage. And he made a comment that I'd heard before and read before, but it just struck me again. He said, a field of force doesn't intercede. People intercede and pray. The Spirit is praying for you. Amazing. The second person of the Trinity is praying for you. He was praying for you months ago when you were in your deepest, darkest time. He was praying for you back when 
even though you believed your faith was almost gone and you were on the precipice of unbelief, the Spirit prayed for you. When you were going through a trial that seemed like it would snuff out your very life, the Spirit was praying for you. That is amazing. The Spirit intercedes with groans that don't even know words. So what's the application for the church of Christ in the 21st century, particularly today, 2022? First is this. I I want you to remember something that you know, I suppose. Almost the entire New Testament is not written to you. Don't be offended. It was written to a community. With the exception of a few like Philemon and 1st 2nd Timothy, if you take a look at it, it's not personally to one person. It's to the church. Now, what we do in the evangelical tradition, and I think rightly, as a matter of fact, I believe it to be part of the power of our tradition, is we take passages that were directed to the church as a group and we make them personal for ourselves. And we turn them to ourselves. And I don't mean to dismiss that. But I do want to hasten to add a corrective. It is possible that if we turn every letter and every phrase and every blessing into a personal about me and my Jesus, we will move towards spiritual narcissism. The scriptures are for the church, for the body of Christ. And within that, we hear the voice of God. So, let me turn it backward. It seemed in Romans chapter 8 when the Spirit was interceding for us, it seemed very personal, didn't it? And it is. But if the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot even be articulated or uttered, it's not just for the individuals, as I mentioned, who are going through a crisis of faith or a trauma in their life or difficulty they can't overcome. This Spirit is, or a trauma in their life or difficulty they can't overcome. This Spirit is praying for the church. The Spirit is interceding on behalf of the church. And you know who the church is? It's the bride of Christ. None of you look like brides. But together, you're the bride of Christ. That's powerful. Well, I can tell you personally... That if it's time to pray or intercede, I'm never so passionate or earnest in my prayers or intercession as I am when I'm praying for my wife or my family. The Spirit intercedes on behalf of his bride, intercedes on behalf of his younger brothers. Jesus is called our elder brother. It's very familial. So the Spirit is interceding for us, first point. 
So as we walk through discouragement as a church, let's remember that. As we walk through discouragement as a church and we need the resources of God, let's remember that. Let's pray to the Holy Spirit of God that he will revive us as a church because the Spirit intercedes for us. He doesn't want his church to fail. He wants his bride to be glorious and spotless. Second thing is the community of faith is sent out, or I should say the community of faith sends out its representatives. I I go back to the sort of Lone Ranger theme that you probably get tired of hearing me say something about, but Lone Ranger Christianity is no Christianity. Christianity wasn't constructed so that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus and do it on your own. Christianity is about the body of Christ, the community of faith. It's about the church. And so you don't send yourself out. You might have some grand calling, some idea, some vision. That's fine. Check it through the body of Christ. Double check it through the body of Christ. Let the body of Christ send you out because you need somebody besides yourself interceding for you and sending you out. Third, the community is is the community that's guided into all truth. And you know, if you know me at all, I firmly believe this to be the Word of God. But I want to add something to that, not to the Word of God. I want to remind you that the Word of God is powerful and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and the Word of God is open to endless discovery. And we don't have it all figured out. If you take a look at the history of the church, there are ongoing revelations in the church, confirmed by the church and the Spirit, that we never dreamed of. When I grew up in the 1960s, in the southern part of these United States, there were separate drinking fountains. You look at that as if it's an abomination, and it is. I'm ashamed to say how long it took for the church to understand the new revelation concerning God that related to race. It took us years to get there, but we got there. And it wasn't just societal change. It was the work of the Spirit. Just like it was in Acts chapter 10 when Peter realized that the Gentiles too had come into the family of God. That's just one example of hundreds in the history of the church where the church understands new revelations concerning the knowledge of God. God will guide the church into all truth. The community will be empowered for teaching and sharing the Word of God. I've often puzzled over why there are all these miracles in the book of Acts. 
and puzzled over why there are miracles in many of the people's lives that I know who are not here in the United States. I don't know the full answer to it, but I'm convinced of one thing. Here's what I'm convinced of. Miracles are birthed out of dependency on the Holy Spirit. When we stop pretending like we have all the answers and we're in charge and we're desperate for the Spirit of God to move, then we'll see miracles. Final thing is this. Um, the Holy Spirit intercedes for his community as I would intercede. For my family. I suppose um, that as I studied this week, it was. It was that more than anything else that struck me and encouraged me. The Holy Spirit is interceding for his church, his bride, and that is us. So how should we respond? Well, we should listen to the Holy Spirit can't listen unless you stop talking, unless you're quiet. We need to listen if he loves us that much. We need to stop long enough to listen and to learn and not pretend like we have it all figured out. And finally, if this is all true, and I believe it is, we need to pray in the Spirit and believe in the Spirit. I mean, really pray in the Spirit. Not just say prayers, but pray in the Spirit. And truly believe that the Holy Spirit of God is alive and active in this community of faith and will do great things if we surrender ourselves to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave your disciples alone. And because of that, you didn't leave us alone. You uh, reminded them of what you said, which is the treasure that we have in the Gospels. And then you empowered them for service, following all kinds of mishaps and mistakes and sins of theirs. And that reminds us that we're the same. You will take us and you will empower us in the Spirit with all the mistakes and sins that are ours. And you love us as you would love a bride. So, Lord, thank you for your love. Help us not to spurn your love either by rejecting it or to spurn it by ignoring it. 
Keep us in close relationship with the Holy Spirit so that we can grow in the faith and in our knowledge of God and service to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.